Just say, God help us. As a preacher, something has to burn within you before you give a message, you know, and it takes a long time to, uh, to get that. I, I mean, uh, it's quite easy, actually, to prepare a talk. I mean, having done Sunday school children's things and you get a word like, like, like faith and you alliterate something and, you, and, and it's easy to actually work out a good you know, a talk. But um, it, we're dealing with God here. We talk, we're dealing with things that affect our spirits and our souls, things which are going to motivate the church and help us in our Christian life. And as a preacher, you, have to, you, you look at something, it has to burn within you. And uh, I, I find that's been difficult to do with this, this book of Romans. I mean, I understand it, I believe it, and it's good. And if you really like theology, it, it tickles in here somewhere. And um, you, you can, can delve into it and you say, is that true? How does that work with that? And um, whatever. Uh, but there comes a time when what you have to say has to burn within you. And uh, I've, I've really found it difficult to get to that point. Um, because it's not easy to actually, if it's not burned within you, it's difficult to get it for someone else that are burned within them. Um, but we're going we're gonna to read the, the passage this morning. We're in, we're in Romans chapter 4 this morning, just a few verses um, in Romans chapter 4. I'll give you just a little bit of time to find it, like me too. Romans 4, and the first eight verses. It's strange because um, Paul's writing a letter here, and, and it's his first little phrase here, and what shall we say then? It's all, he's, in, he's writing a letter, but he's in debate, isn't he? He's, he's sort of working it out in, in letter form uh, for these people to understand uh, what he's trying to say. So verse 1 of chapter 4, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according, according to the flesh. Or we could say, you know, what, what did he get out of it? Was, it? was it just a pattern he was following, or was there something burning within him that made him do what he did? What then, shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. We're on Jewish ground, at largely here, and, it, and it's difficult to get into that. But Paul himself was a Jew, and um, previous chapters we've been talking about um, how that largely the, this the system of this nation. There, there were good hearts within what was going on, but largely the system of this nation and their relationship with God had got to a stagnant place. And, um, and they, were, they were happy, you know, just to think that God was pleased with what they were doing. And um, we could say about Abraham, what, was God pleased just with what he was doing? Or was there something bigger in what he was doing? And so... Paul is trying to say to them, no, there was something better. There was something deeper. There was something organic about Abraham which made him do these things. He wasn't just doing them. Verse 2, for Abraham was just, for if 
Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. Now, if we look at the life of Abraham, Abraham, or wherever we look, we could say he was a man of distinctive faith and strong faith. If even the well-known story about Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice because God told him to do it, was, we could say, well, you don't really read about anybody else in the Bible doing that. But God told him to do it, and so he did it. He believed God. And we could say, well, here's a man who has something to boast about. You know, it was something no one else had done. You could say, was he actually justified by the fact that he did that? Or was he justified by the fact that... Uh, that uh, he, he did any sorts of things. I mean, he, he lived a life which other people looked at. I mean, if you, you try and imagine Abraham, he, he had a big family, and he had lots of servants, and he had lots of cattle. Now, the cattle weren't interested in his life, obviously. They were just interested in food. But his servants and stuff could look at him and say, here's a man that has something more. There's something organic about the man. And so Paul is saying, well... He did have something to boast about, but in actual fact, God didn't take account of that. That's not what God was looking for. I mean, we, you could say, well, when I go to the hospital and if I write down what religion I am, I put down C of E or Roman Catholic or, or Christian or, or whatever or nonconformist, that identifies you with something, but it doesn't do anything, it's just a thing that we do. It's not organic. But what Abraham was organic. It was something that was, a, that was a living pathway within his life that made him do what he wanted to do. And that was beyond just works. Verse 3, for what does scripture say? Now Paul's writing this letter and he's largely talking to Jews, although it be read by non-Jews as well. And he's, what does Scripture say? And he's, he's going to refer back to Old Testament writings because the New Testament wasn't written at this time. It was in the process of being formed and written, obviously, by this letter. But uh, the Scripture said, Abraham believed God. And that comes from Genesis chapter 15 because we actually read... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. There was something organic that made him did what he did. He didn't just do it. Something was burning within him that made him do it. And if we look at chapter 15, and we read about Abraham's life, we find him in dialogue with God. We find there's a relationship there, which is what the organic part of him was. And, and, and that was unique in a sense. But actually the things that he did didn't give him, score him any points. It was the fact that he believed God. So verse 3 again, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, there's just a little phrase there, and it's as far as the Jews were concerned, or the Jewish mindset, 
There's an impossibility there, and it's justifying the ungodly. Because if they looked out on other people who weren't part of their nation or their people or their setup, if you like, there was nothing. They, they were ungodly. They were out. They were out on a limb. They were out of it altogether. And that's how they saw them. And they could not understand the concept of God justifying ungodly people. They felt they were justified before God because of who they were. And by the fact that they were doing the rites and carrying on the things, the doing the laws that God had given them, there was, there was little there that was organic, that was actually the living pathway to God. And so that, those verses 4 and 5, sort of just a simple explanation, really, if we do something, we expect to be rewarded. Now, Abraham didn't do what he did to be rewarded. He did it because he felt that's what God wanted him to do and because he believed in God, he spoke to him, he had a relationship with him. Verse 6, Paul is used Abraham as an example, as the fact that, in actual fact, he had faith. He's had something more than just doing stuff. Now he speaks about David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. American football can be very confusing. It can seem particularly baffling to non-Americans who have not grown up surrounded by reference to the game. It is understandable that a game in which commentators frequently use bizarre phrases such as roughing the snapper and hiking the ball should seem alien to an outsider. However, while trying to understand every regulation of the sport can be time-consuming and frustrating, the basics are relatively easy to grasp. One of the first things a newcomer should learn about American football is that the game rests on the principle that the offensive team must try to cover a 10-yard section of the field in four or fewer downs or plays. If they are unsuccessful, possession of the ball will be lost to the other team. Both inside and outside the United States, the rules which govern the finer points of the game are dictated by one of three rule books. And it says about three rule books. These rule books are extensive and cover every possible eventuality. A summary of the most important rules is provided below for those who want to get an idea of what playing American football involves in its entirety. And I thought, in a strange sort of way, the things that he is saying are relatively talking about what we're reading in Romans, you know. Sometimes it can be confusing. Sometimes it can be particularly baffling. Sometimes it's not easy to understand the game. What's going on here? What's, we can't understand the plan. 
Sometimes it can be time-consuming and frustrating, but the basics are relatively easy to grasp. And it's God help us with understand the basics, which are relatively easily easy to grasp. I'll tell you one of where to go. In a minute, I'm going to read a story from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And there's a little phrase in there which says, it's about, and that's a sto- this is not a story, this is about doctrine, that's why it makes it difficult to understand sometimes. We love the stories, don't we? When someone tells a story up, their ears prick up, and we love to hear what's going on. This is not a story, it's harder. It's talking about essential things that are important in the purposes of God in history and today, and it's difficult, sometimes it seems confusing. But in that story, there's a little phrase, and I'll tell you the phrase first, but we'll read it later. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we'll come back to that just a little bit later on. Paul was being very thorough in this book. Things I say now will have been repeated before, listening to John's message and talking about this aspect of faith. And this is really, it's really about faith, which seems a strange concept to some people. The wonder of it is, the simplicity of grasping is that simply by believing in what Jesus has done for me, I can have everlasting life, all my sins can be forgiven, my, my record is cleared <laughs> and God's given me everything I need to live a godly life. Even in that simplicity, it's say, well, I can't accept that. It's a difficult concept to accept simply by, simply by believing. And we understand that. But that's the point of faith, isn't it? Simply by believing in what Jesus has done for me, I'm free. Ivan, several times this morning, Ivan in worship mentioned the word freedom. I say, well, what really is the problem here? We, well, we find that I can't find, or it's very difficult to find, Paul's intention for writing this letter. Other letters, he gives a, real, a reason for why, for why he's writing for them. But if you've, uh, if, you've got, if you've got a Bible and you, you turn over to uh, Romans 15, we'd see if we can just hook out an intention for Paul writing this letter. And I just want to get at this because it will help us to understand why we're having the game plan laid out before us. Romans 15, verse 14. I think whenever we read a book in the Bible or anything, we always need to ask ourselves, why was this written? What was the writer's intention about it? Why is he laying this all out? Remember, in Rome, they were all relatively new Christians, a large company of Jewish people, and a large company of non-Jewish people, largely coming from an ungodly society, immorality was rife and we we read it in Romans 1 didn't we really what society was like in Rome we read what it was like 
So you had this, this large group of Christians, young Christians. And so what Paul addresses, what's he saying? Verse 14 of chapter 15 I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. So in other words, he's looking at it and he says, well, there is goodness in here, but there's potential problems. Complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. So there's that teaching ability and that learning amongst them. I have written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. He's trying to emphasize to the Jews part of this congregation that the Gentile part of the congregation is fundamentally just important as the Jewish society. And so he's trying to break down barriers and say to them, really, you're all one in Christ. You Jewish people, you haven't got a monopoly on the truth. You need to share that truth with the others, the non-Jews. He's trying to break down, or he's trying to kick away the rotten props, if you like, of the Jewish monopoly on God. He's trying to break it down. And if we read on here, that his priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles, this is, this is the verse, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You Jewish people, you haven't got a monopoly on God. It needs to be shared with the Gentiles. And it needs to be, you need to understand really that you by faith, you can know God in its reality. And they too, by faith, can know God in reality too. They too can have a relationship. Just as much as God wants you to have a relationship and renew a relationship through Jesus Christ. They might raise their eyebrows at that, that the Gentiles, it's a word they didn't like the ungodly, might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. If you just drop back to verse 5 of the same chapter 15, you will read this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. What was happening in those early days of the church is a different situation. What it is, well, not always different, but then the potential for division and polarizing people in groups so that they don't get on with one another. Paul's saying, This is the church of the living God, and people need to be one in Christ Jesus. And so, as we go back 
to what we're talking about, this faith, which was seen in Abraham and David, he's saying, really, it's the faith that's important. That's the basis that God accepts us through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on what he's done for us, the importance of the faith. The process of the Jews' theology was collectively that they were God's chosen people to whom God had given standards to keep as a way of life. And if they generally kept these, they thought they were in. So what's Paul saying here? Faith gives equal opportunities for all, not privileges for a chosen few. Faith gives equal opportunities to all and not privileges for a chosen few. Sometimes it can happen in church life today. We can say, well, we're this and we make an emphasis on this and so we're right. And sometimes we can look at other groups and say, well, well they're wrong on that. I don't, I don't believe on that. And so they're creating the differences. But the one true church of God is one people saved by Jesus Christ. And that fundamentally what Jesus has done for us is so important and that's what it means. So it's faith in him. And I believe Paul is demolishing a stronghold by removing the rotten props. The theology that, the theology that prevents freedom of the gospel to all. So by the process of faith, every individual has free access to the grace and mercy of God. And I think that's so wonderful. So wonderful. Free access to the gospel of God through Jesus Christ. Any stronghold that prevents others knowing Jesus Christ is something that needs to be knocked out of the way. And so easy it can come in. So easy it can prevent other people, even, even the wrong look sometimes, even some of the wrong words you know, can, can sort of prevent people from coming in. But I think if we look at the life of Jesus when he was here on earth, because he spoke so much against the way of the scribes and the Pharisees, he, he said, you make it hard for people to come to Jesus. And in simplicity, it can be so simple. He said, you, and this is the words of the authorised version, and I believe I used them before, because we're in Romans, it keeps repeating itself. He talked about the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you bind burdens grievous to be borne. In other words, the Jewish system placed burdens on people which prevented them from knowing God, really, for who he was. And today, through Jesus Christ, we have this privilege of coming to him. So Paul takes Abraham and David, Abraham the forefather, and David, the model king. And he said, these two guys were examples of organic faith. A faith that works. A faith that God finds acceptable. So what, what do we actually see from these, these two? I'm, I'm going to go to David because they looked to him as a model king. They thought, we want David's kingdom back again. They couldn't see that Jesus was the true king 
of that kingdom that they wanted. But let's look a little bit at David's life. <laughs> Our government today, people are getting just scandalised for what they've done. But listen to David. He took advantage. He schemed. He lied. In fact, he murdered. He committed adultery. Their model king was also an ungodly king at one point. So what was the point of his faith? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? David spoke of the blessing of the one whom God's count righteous apart from his works. Now, some of David's work couldn't give him any standing with God, could they? Just as the same with us. So what was it? David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. If you've got Bibles, you turn over to Psalm 32. We can just read this psalm here. Psalm 32, yeah. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Listen to this, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's the point of faith. The fact that he knew God was a God of forgiveness. And that he could bring all his life to him and know that his God could forgive him. That's an amazing place to be. But it's a sticking point for some because they say, I've done things God can't forgive. And when we sing things like that, it reinforces the statement I made in my earlier preach, showing contempt for the true character of God. If we say things like, God can't forgive me, or I will never forgive them, or that's impossible to forgive, that's contempt against the true character of God. So David demonstrates his faith that the fact that he was a sinner, he knew God would forgive him and clear him from all his unrighteousness. And so David continually came back to God. That's a God that shows his true colour. A God who forgives. Isn't that such an amazing place to be? 
so amazing. We ought to be rejoicing in that this morning. God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name I come to you and share his love as he told me to. Freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely give the true character of God. And we don't it's hidden, isn't it, in society. So Paul uses these two people as examples of faith. And that, he used them because they were part of the Jewish history and they were people that the Jews looked up to. So I just want to make this real for us today before we go to, go to Mark 9. We used to sing a song many years ago, Grace is a Charming Sound. Does anybody remember that hymn? Some of you won't know it, I know you're too young. But there used to be a hymn, and we used to sing, Grace is a Charming Sound. Harmonious to the year, yeah, well, okay. But I just want to say one thing, faith is a charming sound, because it releases me from a responsibility that I can't make because Jesus is the one that did it all for me. So faith is a charming sound. It's the best news you've ever had. That faith in Jesus, believing in him, I can go free. That's so amazing. So this is how it makes it real for us, thinking about these two guys, Abraham and David. Faith in Jesus Christ opens the door to a unique and restored relationship with God wherein God gives us great and precious promises. Think of Abraham. If we read Genesis chapter 15, what shouts at you as you read that is, here's a man who had a relationship with God. It wasn't just doing stuff. And so faith in Jesus Christ, brings us back into that relationship with him. It's not religion. It's someone I know. It's someone I talk to. It's someone I spend time with. How's your relationship with God going? Just at the moment. How much, how much time do you actually spend with him, talking to him? A relationship won't develop unless you spend time with him. Coming here on a Sunday morning is only just a small part of it. But you know, Abraham obviously had an amazing relationship with God that he could trust him. So that's the first thing. Number two, faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to experience a forgiveness that cleans up our act and heals from all previous record of wrongs. Do you, do you get reminded of things you've done in the past? You're ashamed, I do. Very often. But you know, as far as God is concerned, you may get ashamed, but God has cleared it. It's an amazing place to be. Once we know this freedom of forgiveness, we cannot turn around to him and say, well, I don't feel forgiven. You may not feel forgiven, but you are. God has take, but he's thrown it on Jesus who took all our sin and suffered for us. Jesus dealt with it. That's the point which was dealt with early on in Romans. Number three. 
Faith in Jesus Christ makes seemingly impossible things now possible. I haven't got a story, but there are just loads and loads of people who have found that things they couldn't do, they now can do. We had Malcolm's testimony a long time ago, how that the moment he, the time he came to Jesus Christ, he gave up smoking just like that. We know how much it, smoking has a hold on people. You just can't give it up. You know, it's a habit and you get into it. But Jesus breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's the whole point of it. He sets us free. So faith in Jesus Christ makes seemingly impossible things now possible. And this is where we go. I want to use the story of Mark 9 just to say, well, I haven't even got a faith like that. I don't even know where to get it from. My faith, I, I can't even depend on my faith. I don't know whether I do believe or not. It's so difficult. So let's turn over to Mark 9 and read uh, that story there, can we? So there's a title that's been given over this series in Rome, and it's called The King's Revolution. So what part of The King's Revolution do we find in our two passages this morning? One in the story and one in the doctrinal explanation of the Gospel of God. The King's Revolution here is the king who puts power into the hands of ordinary people. That's the King's Revolution the Jews thought they were a special people, and they were. But not that special that other people couldn't know the same things that they could know. Paul is trying to get that message across. The gospel is something which is available for all. Every person, each one of us here this morning. The king's revolution, the king who puts power into the hands of of ordinary people. Has someone got a Bible they just like to come up and read this story for us quickly? Steve, come on in. Well done, son. If you read Mark 9, 14 to 29, yeah? Yep. Nice and loud. Okay. <laughs> See if they can use them. Is that my one, is it? Yep, is it on? Okay. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thank you. Lovely. Jesus called them a faithless or an unbelieving generation. Was it the contentious scribes? Was it the desperate father? Was it the unsuccessful disciples? We don't know. But each of them manifested an act of faithlessness in what they, where they were and what they were doing. We have a desperate father, and he came to Jesus and he said, if you can do this, is that weak faith? Or whatever is it? Is this a crisis of faith or a crisis of doubt? Who knows? But he says, if you, and Jesus said to him, if I can do it. And he turned around and healed the boy. Now all I want to say is, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief, because this is the tension that many people face today. In a sense, they believe, but there's a sticking point, and they want help. The cry for help is an act of faith. The cry for help is an act of faith. That's simple faith at work. So if you find things difficult to believe, ask for help. It's an act of faith. It's my cry to God. It's a simple act of faith, as simple as that. He cries out in frustration. An actual fact, frustration is an act of faith because it wants to be somewhere that you aren't, but you want to get there. That's an act of faith. And God doesn't despise these signs of faith. He uses that to bring us on. This father... He's, he's honest about his assessment. He's not marching around to, I've got faith in Jesus to do this. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Frustration in wanting to be somewhere is, is another indication that faith is at work in us too. And God understands. Because that's an honest assessment. God loves an honest assessment of ourselves. There are many people walking to doubt about today, many preachers with trying to manifest a faith beyond themselves. That's not an honest assessment. But here's someone with an honest assessment. He cries out in frustration. He states his own honest assessment. God understands and he asks for help. 
a step of faith in itself. May God help us to understand that with him, all things are possible. All things are possible. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the things which are hard to understand and how much we need them. And Father, we just meet with us and minister to us again through Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And pray, Lord, I pray for faith to rise this morning. We're a community. People just want to see the manifestation of Jesus amongst us in healing, in salvation, in supernatural works, and in all sorts of ways, Father, that we can't ask for. But we believe, Jesus, you're able to do it. So we ask that you will do it amongst us and help us in your amazing name. Thank you. Okay, time for coffee. And prayer will be available too. If you feel you want help and someone to pray with you, that's fine. Okay.